No, he actually does now because he used to be an intern. He didn't count when he's an intern, but... <laughs> All right. <clears throat> we have um, a couple of Bible studies going on. Think about the things we're talking about. Judy Deal's talking about First Peter on Wednesday nights. And uh, this week she's talking about the whole concept of submitting to every authority. Why is that important in our culture that we learn to submit? Why is that? We're actually going to talk about that today. But why is it important? On Tuesday nights, I'm speaking on the life of Christ. And so the question I have there is, why was it necessary for Christ to be tempted? Why? You know, if we can answer those questions, we can understand a lot more about life and what we're supposed to be like. Also, pay attention to the website. All that information is on the website, by the way. Rob's on Monday nights. Um, but there's several things that are coming up you're going to start to see. For example, we want to get everybody together for a lunch, a church lunch. So we're coming back. You know, the pandemic, we're making it through. The numbers are coming down. We thank the Lord for that. Um, I think we're a pretty healthy church. God has blessed us. So we're going to get together for a kind of a potluck lunch here in early November in, after the second service. So take a look at the website. You'll see it. Uh, several of you have asked if we're going to do another outdoor Christmas Eve service. We did that last year when it was six degrees outside. Staff gave me five minutes to speak, which I did. And they said, how did you do it in five minutes? And I said, it was easy. I took my gloves off so I could turn my Bible pages. When my thumb froze, that was the first minute. When this finger froze, that was the second. When I got to this one, that was number five. It was time to be done. So we're not going to do that. We're going to be indoors, traditionally like we are. But what we would like to do outdoors, since there's a lot of interest, and also invite our community, we, we haven't quite picked the date yet. It'll be on the uh, website pretty soon. We want to do just an old-fashioned Christmas carol singing outside with hot chocolate. And we're going to go around and invite all of our neighbors and say, come join us just to sing Christmas carol songs outside for 30, 40 minutes, drink hot chocolate, and then go home. Maybe do some caroling in the neighborhood, something like that. So we have some events planned just to get all of us involved and to uh, just kind of welcome each other back and also to invite our neighbors to come and do something more fun than watch, uh, you know, Fox News or CNN. And so come and sit and sing Christmas carols with us. So you can see the website for that. Okay, we're in a series, Life Sucks and Then You Die. Ecclesiastes. I decided to speak on Ecclesiastes this fall because as I watch our country and our congregation splinter and fracture uh, and everybody moving along lines of fear discouragement, concern, anxiety, you fill in the blank, whatever it is. I decided to look at Ecclesiastes because he's asking a fundamental question. How do we actually and where do we actually find significance? How does that happen? So if we can regroup and center ourselves along what is actually significant, then we can stay focused as a church. And so we're doing that. So remember the message of Ecclesiastes. <clears throat> There's nothing in life that can give sustainable meaning to life. Nothing. Nothing without the Lord. We're going to come back and touch on some of the things we've talked about earlier. Uh, when Rob was here up front, he talked about frustrations. And there were a whole list of frustrations. We didn't go through them all. But there's a lot of lists of frustrations. We all live with them regularly throughout life. So then last week we talked about what is the solution to that except the frustrations. You can't change it. You can't control it. It doesn't do any good to get upset about it. 
I was taught a long time ago that to get anxious about things you can control and everything else is above your pay grade. In fact, I don't know if you guys remember, like five years ago, some of you were here then, when the Supreme Court ruled in favor of gay marriage. The elders said, you know, you're going to have to talk about it. It's like, okay. So I got in front of the church at the amphitheater. I was more nervous about those three minutes than I was about any sermon I've ever given. Those three minutes. So I got up there and I said, well... You all are familiar with the Supreme Court decision on gay marriage. And everybody got real quiet. Because now they go, he's finally going to answer our question. Is he a Republican or a Democrat? Okay. And I said, I've been struggling all week. But let me tell you what I'm not struggling with. I'm not struggling with the Supreme Court decision. That's above my pay grade. I'm not going to worry about it. I'll let the Lord deal with that. But I looked all week to capture what was I was struggling with, and I found a picture of a guy holding a sign. This captured my frustration, or my struggle, I should say. It said, I'm so glad we have the Constitution to protect us from Bible-controlling Christians. Where on earth did we lose Our reputation. Instead of being known for being loving, we're known for our political divisions. Where'd that come from? I mean, I get it. John 13 says, you know, um, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you're Republicans. Oh, no, I'm, I'm sorry. That's right. If you're Democrats. Oh, wait, wait, that wasn't it. I forgot the verse. What does it say? If you have love for one another. Right? So I asked the question, can we get back to, because our church, we're divided as a church. That's what I love about it. Everybody has an opinion. That's wonderful. I love opinions. I love debates. Okay, I, one of my favorite things is when somebody comes up to me after church and says, I disagree with you. Yes. That happened in the first service. And then she said, but after four weeks of listening to you, I think I've changed my mind. I like what you're saying. Oh, okay. And so <clears throat> that's fun. But can't we live together and enjoy the debates and still show love to people and to each other. So I said that and everybody started applauding at the amphitheater. Can't we be known for our love, not our political divisions? No, I'm not going to never tell you how I'm registered. Ask me about a policy and I'll tell you what I think about that. You're never going to know. So what happened? What went wrong in our culture? There is a plethora of books, articles, pundits, experts, all talking about what went wrong in our culture. Here's what I think, and it's real simple. We've been taught to look at life in the wrong way. That's what's wrong. We've been taught to look at life in the wrong way. So today we're going to look at Ecclesiastes 8. Don't look to the government for help. Okay. So now that he's done talking about all these frustrations, we're going to talk about don't look to the government for help. And I firmly believe this. Here's why. Romans, Ecclesiastes 8.1. <clears throat> he's a little bit sarcastic. He said... Um, Excuse me. In, in Ecclesiastes 8.1, who is like the wise? Who knows the explanation of things? He just got done saying a few verses earlier 
in uh, verse 23 of chapter 7. Um, All this I tested by wisdom, and I said, I am determined to be wise, but this is beyond me. Whatever exists is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? I like uh, the story of Job. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. When, you know, Job and his friends go through 38 chapters of uh, dialogue, trying to figure out what happened, trying to figure out what's the real answer to Job to help him out, as friends do, you know, when you're in trouble. And then all of a sudden, Job's last comment is, where are you, God? If you would bother to show your face, you would repent. And you would admit that I am right and you are wrong. Out of the whirlwind comes the Lord and he goes, all right, here I am. Right here. I love the old translations. Gird up your loins, I command. I will ask you and you will answer me. Where were you when I created the earth? Surely you know because you were there. And he goes through verse after verse after verse of humbling Job. And Job finally says, I repent. And God said, oh, no, no, we're not done. Second time, gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you and you will ask and you'll answer me. Would you really annul my judgment? Think about that. He could have said Satan did all this, but God never shirks his responsibility. He takes responsibility because he is absolutely sovereign. Satan couldn't have done it without his permission. He never says a word about Satan. Would you, Job, really? Would you really? Would you really annul my judgment to justify yourself? You see, Job, you have no idea what's going on. I am God and you are not. And that's what we talked about last week. Accept frustration because you cannot control it. Well, sometimes he gives control. Where he gives control, enjoy it. But you cannot control what comes into your life. That's God's decision to do that. So he have a little bit of that sarcasm going right here in verse 1. So who is like the wise? Who knows the explanation of things? You know what the answer is going to be, don't you, in just a minute? Nobody. Nobody. A person's wisdom brightens their face and changes his heart appearance. When you think you figured it out, you smile. But then he's going to get into it. Obey the king's command. That's verse 2. Obey the king's command. And so the king here, uh, I think, applies to all government leaders. All right? What he's about to say. So that's why I said don't look to the government. Don't place your hope there. It's the wrong place. You will be frustrated. You might be amused, but you will be frustrated. Okay? So it goes on in verse 2. He says, Obey the king's command, I say, because you took an oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave the king's presence. Do not stand up for a bad cause, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since a king's word is supreme, who can say to him, what are you doing? So, um, why? It's prudent not to argue with the king. Why? He's the king. That's why. So, he is sovereign. That's the word there. And his desires will be accomplished no matter what. So, Job actually asks this question in a different place in Job chapter 9, verse 12. Let's put that up there. 
If he snatches away, who can stop him? Who can say to him, who can say to God, what are you doing? And that's what he says here. Okay, who can say to the king, what are you doing? Nobody, you lose your life. So Ecclesiastes is reminding us in some way that the king or a government leader is virtually godlike. This will help you understand when we finish this chapter, Paul, uh, Peter in 1 Peter and Paul in Romans 9. Obey the government, submit to them. There is no leader except what God has established and put in place. Not one. Don't criticize our president. I laugh at him. But I laugh at every president. I don't like him, but I don't like most of our presidents. Or at least something about them. But don't criticize them. Because God is the one that put them there. So pray for our president that God would give him wisdom. And that if he doesn't know the Lord, he would come to know the Lord. Because the Lord is the one that gets to decide who's going to be the leader. Oh, vote. I vote. But remember, Paul's very clear. This is what sovereignty is all about. God is the one that makes the decision. You see, what he's arguing here is that it's dangerous to go against the king. There are consequences. So we would learn a a lot by looking at the first century Christians the first two generations of Christians, actually. Uh, you can read about them in the Apostolic Fathers and other places. And, and you can read about the first century Christians by reading the New Testament. And um, you know what? When did they ever show civil disobedience? When? They had, a lot to do, they had a lot to rebel against. They had abortion, infanticide, euthanasia, worship of many gods. The list goes on and on and on. That's what the Roman government was sponsoring, paying for, funding, supporting, all of that. But we don't have a record of them uh, protesting or disobeying against any of those things. Only one thing. Did they stand up and say no? And that's when they said, you can't talk about Jesus. Beat us. Take our lives. And a lot of them lost their lives because of that. That's the history of Christianity. The faithful, read Hebrews 11 all the different ways that people have died. They said, now that wall, we're willing to stand up against. We'll stand up against that wall and get shot, but not these other things. And so they figured out that the goal was to transform culture from the inside out through love. And it was incredible how they impacted. By 300, the Christianity was the official religion of the Roman Empire. Now that presented its own series of problems. I'm not recommending that as a model, but I'm saying that they, they, they did it. It was successful. Transform culture from the inside out. Don't rebel. Don't criticize. That's why I keep saying, you know, take your post down. If your posts are critical on Facebook, get rid of them. Act like a Christian. And that's what Christians do. Okay? So the, he goes on in verse 5 and 6. And he's going to say that it's very wise and therefore safe to obey the king's command. Whoever obeys his command, that's the king, or whoever's in authority, will come to no harm. And the wise heart will know the proper time and the procedure. There is a proper time and a procedure for every matter. He had just argued that in chapter 3. Though a person may be weighed down by misery. So obedience avoids unpleasant consequences, quite honestly. Again, I ask the question repeatedly, is this above my pay grade? If it is, I'm not going to worry too much about it. Remember that he had previously highlighted the importance of the, there's a time and a place for everything. OK, 
okay? In, in chapter 3, we went through that. So God has clearly placed limitations of what we can and can't do. He does give us some freedom, and we are expected to demonstrate some level of wisdom to know when to act and when not to act. And that's important. This means that we need to think as a church, we need to think very carefully, very carefully, when to disobey the government. That's what he's talking about with proper time and place and procedures. We need to think very carefully. What do you want to die for? Are you willing to die for a max, a mask or a vaccine? I'm not. Are you willing to die for the gospel? I am. I'll die for the Trinity. Okay? I'll die for that. My list of what I'm willing to die for is very narrow, very short, but it's very powerful. And so we need to think very carefully when it's appropriate to stand up. Being weighed down by misery, the very last thing he says there is itself, it, does, it reveals God's wisdom because it reveals limitations. Remember what we've been saying throughout the whole series, that God didn't create the mess, we did. Why? Because we wanted to be like God. That's why. Okay? If we're like God, we don't need God. Okay? So therefore, once we created the mess, we bound God to certain um, things to do within his own framework of love. If he does nothing, then we never have to turn back to him. The greatest gift he can give us is affliction. That's really the greatest gift. Suffering, trials. You know, after decades of being a Christian and hearing Thousands and thousands of testimonies. It's amazing how consistent some things are. When things go rough, that's when we typically reach back out to God in the most powerful way. So God throwing us a curveball is an act of grace to, so we don't get too comfortable with ourselves. That's why James can say in James 1, count it all joy. When you encounter various trials because it generates patience. That's the greatest gift God can give us, okay? But at the same time, he's not interested in wearing us down. He's going to argue this in just a minute. So he's going to give us times of refreshing and joy. But then we're right back at it, okay? So misery is itself a reflection of the wisdom of God to cause us to really think carefully through what do we think and who are we. He goes on in verse 7 talks about the reason why we should obey since no one knows the future who can tell someone else what is to come now he's already asked this question numerous times in chapter 7 he says therefore no one can discover anything about their future in chapter 6 he says who can tell them what will happen under the sun after they are gone so here he says no one can know the future and by the way that's the true of the king as well i've told you before i'll tell you the first president that gets my full respect the one that stands up there in the State of the Union and says, you know what? The truth is this country is going to hell and I don't have a clue what to do about it. They get my attention. What do they all say? It's the same. It's always the same. It's messed up, but we've got to figure it out. No, you don't. Because no one can know the future and no one can control God. No. That's why God says, I'm the one who decides. That was his argument to Job. I'm God, you're not. You may not like it, but yeah, too bad. I decide who is rich. I decide who is poor. 
I decide which nation to rise up. I decide which nation to destroy. I decide who's going to be deaf. I decide who's going to be mute. I decide who's going to be blind. I decide who's going to be seeing. Exodus 3, all those are in Exodus 3. I decide all these things. I decide when to send pestilence and death among you. I decide. I decide. I decide. Okay? So when you have any president, it doesn't matter to me which side of the aisle they're on. Stand up and say, we got it figured out. No, you don't. You actually don't. So, since no one knows the truth, <laughs> I mean the future, I love it. Verse 7, who can tell someone else what is to come? And no one has the power over the wind to contain it. So no one has power over the time of their death. No one is discharged in time of war. So wickedness is not, uh, will not release those who practice it. So, he gives us four pictures of how powerless we truly are. One is we cannot control the wind. We don't have that kind of power. Another one is that no one has a power over their death. No one. You don't get to decide. Okay? You don't. When you die. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to die today. <laughs> no one. No one can get out of a battle once it's engaged. You can't just walk off the field. You get killed for doing that. No one can escape the consequences of wickedness. No one. You see, that's the real destructive nature of sin right there. No one can escape the consequences of wickedness. It goes on and on and on. Every one of you has skeletons in the closet. Another thing I've learned after thousands and thousands of coffees is that uh, the things that disturb our people the most are the things that happened a long time ago. I remember doing X, and I can't forget it. That's the real power of sin, is that we can't forget we remember. Forgiveness of self is just about the hardest thing one can do. And by the way, the Bible adds so many more things we can't do. I cannot act in place of the Spirit, for example. I can't convict a single one of you. Even Jesus didn't do that. That's exclusively reserved for the Holy Spirit. I can't convict a single human. Not going to try. It's your marriage. You want to mess it up? Go ahead. I'll help you. I can't redeem a person. That's not within my power to do it. I can't transform a person. That's not within my power to do it. So as a pastor, I'm pretty much limited to engaging you in conversation and loving you, which I love doing. The Holy Spirit has to do the heavy lifting. I don't have to, ever. And so the Bible is very clear that God is God and I am not. And furthermore, you don't want me to be God. And I don't want to be God. Okay? The problem is we have trouble getting used to that because we like being God. What's the one thing God tried to protect us from in the garden? Do you remember? The one thing, only one, the knowledge of good and evil. Why? Because to practice the knowledge of good and evil requires omniscience. I don't know your motives. I don't know your consequence. I mean, your uh, circumstances. I don't know that. We see it all the time. It happens little little places like this. You know, the boss gets mad because you're late for work. and say, I'm so sorry he's late. Had to take my wife to the hospital. Oh, okay, well, that makes sense. He didn't know the circumstances. He or she didn't know. 
I don't know your motives because I don't know what's in here. I don't know your circumstances. And so there's no way, there's no way any of us can truly practice that knowledge of right and wrong. It's not even possible. And then when you add into that a fallen world where God says, I am God and you are not, we can't control it. You can't understand it. That's why he said, who even understands it? Nobody really. I have enough trouble even exploring my own motives, to be honest with you. Sometimes I'll get upset and I'll, and I'll ponder, why did I just get upset? I have to think about that. It didn't come naturally. Why did I get upset? So no one can escape the consequences of wickedness or sin. He goes on to verse 9. All this I saw as I applied my mind to everything done under the sun. That's what's happening on the earth. There is a time when a man lords it over others to his own hurt. Okay? So remember, he's talking about the king through here. Even the one in power hurts himself when he lords it over others. You know what's happening in Haiti? Right? If you follow the news at all. I'm sure you all heard about the kidnapping of the 17. But have you, have you looked at the, the pictures online of Port-au-Prince, the capital? The riots, the destruction, the burning, the tearing down everything. The people are all saying the same thing. We don't even have enough. We don't have any way to heat our houses, but our government officials have nice houses to heat it. We don't have enough food to eat. My friend, uh, Pastor Bob, is going to be here in November, actually. Uh, and he said people are dying of starvation every week. We don't have enough food to eat. But our government officials have plenty to eat. We don't have any medical supplies or medical care. and We're dying. Pastor Bob from that. Disease is spreading rampant. But our government officials are taken care of. We've had enough. Kill the Americans. Okay? And so what did the leader of the gang say this week? You have to a certain date to get a 17 million, 1 million for each child or each person. And we're going to start putting a bullet in the head of them. It's a mess. Okay, what did he say here? Um, There is a time when a man lords it over others to his own hurt. You see, the Christian message is put one another first, not last. To put one another first. So we see it all over the world. History is replete with examples of what happens when you have somebody that is selfish and greedy and corrupt. Then he goes on in verse 10. Now we're changing subjects a little bit, and now we're going to talk about the king's justice. Then too I saw the wicked buried. buried. I love that. I saw the wicked buried. And um, uh, those who used to come and go from the holy place, those are the wicked, would receive praise in the city where they did. This too is meaningless. Chasing after the wind, trying to understand it. So people see injustice from different angles. This is reminiscent of Ezekiel's vision in Ezekiel 8, which we talked about this summer. When Ezekiel, the priest, uh, God said to him in a vision, let me show you what the temple actually looks like. He lives in the temple. This is where he does all his stuff. Let me show you the reality. And he puts on different lenses. And you know what he sees? People in every corner bowing down to different idols. I can't imagine the trauma of a godly priest seeing the reality. I wonder what, and I asked this question at the amphitheater. If, if I, don't, I don't want these glasses, I'm really gracious. God's very gracious not to give them to me. But if he gave me a lens, what would I look at when I see you? What idols would you be bowing down to? What would that look like? 
And so this is reminiscent of that. Okay, they're trying to understand it. They used to come into the temple and they do evil. Then they go out into the city and receive praise. You see, the absence of justice is frustration. It's a frustration. We wonder why God lets it happen. It's meaningless to us. We can't figure it out, but we see it all the time. Why do high government officials hardly ever get held accountable for the same things we would? Why is that? It's a frustration. He goes on in verse 11 and talks about this impl- uh, the failure to implement justice leads to even more injustice. Verse 11. When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. Although a wicked person who commits a hundred crimes may live a long time, I know that it will go better with those who fear God, who are reverent before him. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them, and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. So here, once again, he's he's discussing this concept of retributive justice, that we do wrong and we get punished for it. No, we don't. I've asked the question so many times. How many of you sinned this week? If you're honest, every hand would go up. And how many of you have been punished by God? That's not the way God works. He doesn't work. And the evil don't usually get punished. Often they don't. We demand justice and we're happy when it comes, as long as it's not me. But we like it when other people suffer and, and receive that justice. But it, he says it does go well with those who fear God. That doesn't mean you're going to live a long life and be successful. It means it's going to go well. You see inside of here, you're going to enjoy life a lot more. He's going to get to that in just a second at the end of that paragraph. The person who's evil might live a long time, but their days will not lengthen like a shadow. This is a very difficult image to sort it out. Okay? Think about what happens at the end of the day. As the day wears on, the shadow gets longer and longer and longer, right? I think what he's talking about here, he's using an imagery that the true destructive nature of sin is more related to the long term. For those that, that honor the Lord, their shadows are long and deep. For those that aren't, that don't do that, their shadows are short-term and sins become more destructive as time goes by. And I wonder if that's what he's trying to capture with this imagery. Their joy grows empty by the day, more and more empty. He goes on from there, though, in verse 14, to try to understand how justice truly functions as meaningless. There is something else meaningless, verse 14, that occurs on the earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. Anybody seen that? All you got to do is watch the daily news. This too, I say, is meaningless. It's a waste of time to even try to figure it out. So I commend the enjoyment of life because there is nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat drink and be glad, then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of the life that God has given them under the sun. No one on earth gets what they deserve. It'll happen, just not now. No one, including you. No one on the earth gets what they deserve. So the what's his answer? Enjoy the simple pleasures of eating and drinking in the light of meaningless existence. You see, it's necessary for God. It's critical, not necessary for God. It's necessary for us that God not give us what we want. 
You read about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. You have the lust of the flesh. You have the fruit of the Spirit. Intriguing verse. These two are at war. They're in opposition to one another so that you won't do what you please. The moment we blew it and the moment we messed it up, then God, because of his love for us, said what you need now is adversity. That's what you need. If I give you what you want continuously, we'll never look back. We'll never look to him. That's the role that adversity plays. But God also knows that we can't sustain that every day, every day of life. And so he says there are simple pleasures that God gives. In fact, he just said that over in verse 14 of chapter 7. We talked about that last week. When times are good, be happy. When times are bad, consider this. God has made both of them. And so it is a gift from the Lord. It is a gift when things come into your life that are hard. Because that's when you typically turn back to the Lord and that's what he's after. You see, God is a loving, merciful God. He's going to do everything with the exception of violating your free will because that's how he shows dignity. Each of you get to choose. He's going to do everything except violating your free will to get you to turn back to him. So some of you get a lot of curveballs thrown at you. Okay? You need to learn to recognize them as a gift from the Lord. That's what they are. Not as a curse. This is a gracious thing. It's much like what a parent does with a child. When they need punishment, that's an act of grace. To do nothing, they move in the wrong direction. And that's what he's talking about here, I think. So no one, no one gets what they deserve. The answer, enjoy the simple pleasures uh, that God gives us when he gives it to us and we take a break. So when you get that short break, that's the time to... And he goes on, when I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe the labor that is done on earth, people getting no sleep day or night, then I saw all that God has done, no one can comprehend. Did you hear that? No one, including the king. No human can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all their efforts to search it out, no one can discover its meaning. Even if the wise claim that they know, they really do not know. That's the conclusion. No one, including the king, can comprehend true knowledge and what is actually going on. No one. This is why church. It's one of the reasons why church is important. Because the closest we can come to making sense of this world is when we do it together. That's why I've said repeatedly, don't worry about what's going on out there. Let it go. I had a lady come up to me after the first service and say, I've never had a pastor say just worked so hard to separate religion from politics. And at first I wasn't sure I agreed to you, but after several weeks of listening to you, I like it. I'm feeling more at rest. If you have no control over it, don't get anxious over it. It's above your pay grade. Let the Lord deal with it. Enjoy the simple pleasures when they come your way. When you see that sunset that's so beautiful, just pause and reflect on it. When you hold your spouse and just for a moment, it seems so perfect. Enjoy it. 
When your kids stop rebelling just for a second, record it. I mean, (laughs) taste it. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That's what he's talking about. Endure. Because you don't have any control. You really don't. So what does church do? It brings us to collectively a sense of wisdom. That's what you do not get when you go find God in the mountains. You don't get this. This is where collectively we can make sense. This is where we can encourage one another. This is where we find out that you're not alone in what you're going through. A bunch of other people are going through the same thing. This is where we are shaped in Christ right here. This is why church, church is not important. It's essential. And that's why. That's why. Father, thank you for being such a great God. Thank you for not leaving us to our own devices when we turned against you. We are so grateful. We are so grateful, Lord, even though we hate to admit it, we are grateful that you throw curveballs at us, trials, tribulations, because it does force us back to you. Thank you for being that kind of God. In Jesus' name, amen.